Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. Uh, so if you are with us last Sunday, Kevin is uh, taking us through a series on shepherding and looking at how God leads His people. Uh, and last week we looked at Psalm 23. Uh, so probably the most well-known passage in all of the Bible, uh, regardless of your denominational background or whatever, you've heard that passage of Scripture, possibly at a funeral, uh, but you've certainly heard Psalm 23. <clears throat> I think this week we're going to have the opposite of that problem. Uh, if you're like me, you typically don't make it to Ezekiel in your yearly Bible reading plan. Uh, we probably don't make it much, pa- much past Leviticus. So Ezekiel is kind of an unfamiliar book to us. But Ezekiel is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. And he's prophesying uh, during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So to give you a little bit of context for where we're at in the book... Ezekiel is uh, is a Hebrew man, and he's from the tribe of Levi. He's a priest. And so you would expect that he would be riding from the city of Jerusalem, where the priests were, in the temple. And instead, when we get to chapter 34, we see that Ezekiel is actually in Babylon. Well, how in the world did he get there? Uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar, the same guy from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same guy from Daniel... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar led his armies to Israel and kind of attacked it in waves. And when he did, he brought back Israelites to Babylon uh, in captivity. And that's where we find Ezekiel. Just a few chapters before this, Ezekiel's received some pretty uh, terrible news. Uh, in chapter 10, he saw a vision of God's presence leaving the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of Solomon. Chapter 33, right before this, he receives word from people that the temple has now fallen. Uh, that the nation of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem, has been completely ransacked and destroyed. And I want us to understand that because we need to get a feel for the sense of despair and hopelessness that the people of Israel would be feeling at this time. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie Olympus Has Fallen. Uh, if you haven't, it's, a, it's an excellent movie. Anything with Gerard Butler in it's got to be good, right? Dude's a boss. Uh, but in, in this movie, right, Gerard Butler is uh, with the Secret Service and the White House gets attacked, right? This large-scale terrorist attack on the Capitol. And I... What's so interesting to me about this movie is that, you know, you're watching the scene of the terrorist attack and you're seeing the Washington Monument crumble. You know, you you see the gates of the White House get blown open, the front door of the White House kicked in, the president's taken, right? Like, all of these things that are kind of fixtures in our society, things that basically to us show what it means to be an American, and we're seeing those things crumble in this movie. And it's kind of unsettling to watch the movie, right? It's something we can't really fathom. For Israelites, that's what it would have felt like to get the news that God's presence has left the temple. That's what it would have felt like to hear the the temple of Solomon's been destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are gone. The city is ruined. They, they're feeling a deep sense of despair and hopelessness. And it's in this time that Ezekiel is preaching to the people. So we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 24 this morning. And we're going to see that God holds the leaders of Israel primarily responsible for the fall of Jerusalem and the scattering of God's people. So turn your attention with me to verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, you who have been feeding yourselves, should you not feed the sheep? 
You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the whole earth with none to search for or seek them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have become, uh, and, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but they have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves, for I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places that they have been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land." There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my people, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to, to drink of clean water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come, we humbly come before your word. Father, asking you through your spirit to open our eyes this morning. Father, that we would finally see, maybe for the first time, and if not for the first time, Lord, would you take us deeper into the knowledge of your goodness. Lord, the way that you care for your people. Father, would we see your love for a very imperfect, rebellious people, God, in the way that you have sought us out and shepherded us in Christ. Father, help us to see that this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, 
see, this was probably about two years ago now. Kaylee and I got married, and uh, we were uh, we we had just moved into our first house, and it was out of city limits. And so, you know, when you live out of the city limits, you don't get there, and there's a trash can waiting on you at the road. You know, you have to go buy that sort of thing yourself. And so, since we were getting married, uh, we. You know, we knew we were going to need a trash can at some point, right? You want to throw your trash out by the road. So we decided, all right, we're going to take an afternoon. We're going to go to Lowe's, and we're going to get a trash can while we run some other errands. And so we get to Lowe's, and we pick out, you know, one of the big, like, sturdy green trash cans. It's built like a battleship. And I was like, yeah, that's the one right there. And uh, I, Kaylee's like, all right, great. Well, let's roll it up there. And I said, no, 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 wait. Come on, look. Hop in the trash can. Let me take your picture. You know, this is our first big marriage purchase, right? we got to Instagram this, which I hope that's the most millennial thing I say in this whole sermon, by the way. So we're going to Instagram the purchase of a trash can. And my my poor, sweet, naive wife, at the time, you know, again, we're newlyweds, so she didn't know that she should have been a little skeptical. She trusted me. It's her mistake, right? So she gets in the trash can. And as soon as she hops over in the trash can, I immediately take the trash can lid and just shut her up in the trash can, you know, rock it back on its wheels and start pushing her around. So she tries to stand up, and I, like, push the lid back down. I was like, shh, trust me, trust me, it's fine. Well, at this point, again, I don't know why she chose to keep trusting me. Like, I'm pushing her around lows in a trash can, but she did. And so I push her straight up to the register. I really didn't have a plan. I was just kind of going with this. And uh, so we, we get up to the register. And, uh, unfortunately there was a line. So, uh, so I like try and gently set her back down, you know, but obviously this is not a light trash can worm. There's a human being in it. And so it, you, it's clear something, something's in the trash can. So the cashier looks at me kind of like, huh, you know, and it immediately clicks in my mind like she thinks I'm trying to steal stuff out of Lowe's. Like she thinks that I'm smuggling tools or something out in this trash can. And, um, so she's, you know, she, she's giving me this side eye, and so I should go ahead and I roll Kaylee up to the register, and, uh, the, the poor cashier, she, she comes up to like my chest, alright, so she, she comes down from around, uh, behind the cash register, and comes over to the trash can, and she's about eye level with the trash can. And in my mind, I'm going, this is going to be really funny or really bad. I, I don't know which one, but this is going to be interesting. So at that point, I'm trying to figure out, can I get to my phone quick enough to video this? And I couldn't. So she walks over, and she flips the lid over on the trash can and kind of like peers over into the trash can. And as she does, Kaylee and the cashier both scream, right? Like just lose their minds. They scared each other. Everyone around us in Lowe's at this point I mean, you know, we're, we're in Alabama, right? So everybody behind us in Lowe's is like, what? What's he got in the trash can? You know, what's he doing? And uh, Kaylee just like slowly stands up in the trash can uh, with just this look of shame and embarrassment. And everybody loses it, right? They just start dying laughing. And so the cashier goes back behind the cash register and said, hey, look, I thought this was going to be another boring day at work. Thank you, guys. You saved me from that. Um, now, listen, when I was doing this, I did not have Kaylee's best interest at heart. I wanted a good laugh, okay? I want a good story, and I got it, because uh, I'm going to tell you guys about it now. So we've all seen examples of selfish leadership, right? Maybe your husband hadn't locked you in a trash can, but we've all seen examples of self-serving leadership with ulterior motives where basically the, the good of the person being led is probably not front and center of the mind of the person leading Maybe for you that's been in the church. Uh, maybe maybe for you that's been in the workplace. But we have seen examples of bad leadership where the person in charge, the person leading is self-centered. Right? Where, where the people being led are simply a cog in the wheel. They're not being taken care of. 
And that's what we see in God's description of the shepherds of Israel. So God kind of builds out this metaphor in these 24 verses that we're going to look at where he compares the nation of Israel under the leadership of their kings to sheep being led by a bad shepherd. Uh, so if you would, we're going to look. We have two points this morning. That doesn't mean I'm going to get you out of here quicker. Uh, in fact, we were one song short in worship, so I bought myself a few extra minutes there by taking that song out of the PowerPoint. Um, but uh, but no, we, we, have two, we have two points this morning. First thing we want to look at is we want to look at the shepherd's failure and the people's plight. The shepherd's failure and the people's plight. If you look there in verse 2, he says this. He says, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, you have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? And then in verse 3, he says, You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Alright, so the very first thing that God says about the leaders of Israel, right, the kings that God had put in place over the nation of Israel, the very first thing is, He says, You failed to feed the sheep. You failed to feed the sheep. But not only that, he says, you took advantage of the sheep. Right? Like at their expense, you lined your own pockets and filled your belly. So God had placed shepherds, placed rulers, kings in charge of the nation of Israel. For what purpose? Right? Obviously, they were put in place to show God's love in shepherding and in leading the nation of Israel. And instead of caring for the sheep, though, they had no problem butchering them to fill their belly, shearing their wool to make a profit. So rather than feed God's people on His Word, these leaders regularly shuck that responsibility. And as a result of not feeding the sheep on God's Word, the nation of Israel was spiritually malnourished, which contributed to their wondering, their faithlessness. Rather than see Israel as a group that they were commissioned to selflessly serve, even with their lives, they only used the people as a means to an end. They were merely a cog in the wheel, These leaders, the picture that we're given is someone who valued their own comfort and prosperity over the well-being of the sheep. That's the picture that we have of Israel's leaders. But not only did they fail to feed the sheep, not only did they take care of themselves at the expense of the people, the next thing we see is that they dealt harshly with the weak and wounded. If you look in in verse 4a, it says, "...the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed." The injured, you have not bound up. Alright, so, the, the shepherd's job, right? I mean, Kevin did a great job kind of painting a picture for us last week of the shepherd's responsibilities. One of the shepherd's responsibilities was to care for the weak and wounded sheep. Right? Sheep are utterly defenseless. They have no method of taking care of themselves except running. That's it. And they're not even that fast. Sheep are utterly defenseless without a shepherd. And so when sheep would get injured, rather by their own stupidity or because they were being attacked, when sheep were injured and weak, it was the responsibility of the shepherd to care for the weak and the wounded. And these shepherds did not do that. Instead of dealing with the weak and wounded tenderly, these ungodly shepherds harshly and forcefully dealt with the neediest among God's people. So at the very best, the sheep were ignored. The weakest and wounded sheep were ignored. At worst... The weak and wounded were treated as inferior. They were a nuisance. They were just trouble. They were a bother. But why? Why would the weak and the wounded sheep be treated as a nuisance? Why would they be the first to be abused and not cared for? That's fairly obvious, right? The weak and wounded sheep don't offer you a whole lot of profit. Weak and wounded sheep offer no tangible benefit to the shepherd. A sheep that's been wounded... 
or is malnourished. That sheep's not going to provide you very much wool to turn a profit. They're probably not very good eating. So the sheep, because they offered no tangible benefit, they were put off to the side. And this, God says, is a picture of Israel's leadership. The weak and wounded were despised, ignored, treated as less valuable. But not only that, not only did they harshly deal with the weak and wounded, they didn't protect the sheep. If you look at the end of verse 4 there, he says, The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the wild beasts. So, why did the sheep get scattered? What in the world make a, a, a herd of sheep scatter? They were being attacked, right? Sheep scatter when they're attacked. They have no defense mechanism, like we said, so they're going to run. The shepherd failed in his responsibility to protect the sheep. Now, obviously, we see the metaphor pretty clearly, right? The nation of Israel has been scattered abroad. They're in Babylon instead of being where they ought to be in Jerusalem. Over and over again, what we see from these kings in Israel, with very few exceptions, we see the kings of Israel were ultimately self-centered cowards. They were unrighteous men, unholy men. They failed to lead the people to God's word. They failed to protect them. And they dealt harshly with the weak and wounded So they were scattered. The sheep were scattered. When Israel most needed their rulers to stand and fight for them, they were often exposed as being cowards, and they ran the opposite direction. So the sheep were scattered. And then look at verse 6. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains. On every high hill, my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. So not only did the shepherd fail at every single turn in his responsibility to care for the sheep, But then when the attacks did come and the sheep were scattered, the shepherd totally shucked his responsibility to go and actually get the sheep. There was no remorse. He never came to his senses and realized his mistake and went to find them. He let the sheep remain scattered. But see, there's more than just attacks that make sheep scatter, right? Sheep tend to wander. Right, we, we talked about that this morning during our confession of sin and repentance. We talked about that last week in Psalm 23, that sheep wander. Right, they'll 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 catch sight of something off in the distance, and they just kind of wander, meander about. Right, uh, they'll they'll start eating a patch of grass, and you'll look up, and they're a hundred yards away. That's that's the mind of a sheep, right? And if we're being honest, that's probably what it looks a lot like to shepherd us as people. It's the job of the shepherd to make sure that sheep do not wander off. Not only when they're attacked, it's not just the shepherd's job to protect them from outside danger, it's the shepherd's job to protect them from the danger they pose to themselves. The sheep were prone to scatter. The shepherd did not go and get them. He did not search for them. So let's let's think about the effects of this poor leadership for a second. I mean, from the standpoint of the nation of Israel, but also just from the metaphor God's building out here. Look at how he describes the sheep. They were malnourished, weak, wounded, neglected, They're practically left for dead if they were weak and wounded. And now the sheep without protection are now scattered and defenseless. And this is a picture of the nation of Israel at this point in history. And God is holding the nation's leaders responsible. And look, it doesn't need to be lost on us, God's care in this passage. Uh, Verse 10, let's read that real quick. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. 
and they will not be food for them. God's care kind of radiates from this passage. And while it was Israel's leaders, in a sense, that were responsible for the sheep being scattered, for them being malnourished, it was ultimately Israel's faithlessness that led to Babylon attacking them. That's why God's presence left the temple. It's because Israel had a lack of faith. It was a lack of obedience. Even though the people had bad leadership, they were still held responsible for their sin. And yet, despite that, despite Israel's faithlessness, despite Israel's lack of obedience, God never stops caring for His people. You can hear His zealous love for His people in this passage. Yet, His great anger towards these leaders can only come out of a place of equally great love for His people. But why did He love these people? Why would He choose to come and rescue a people that had frustrated him over and over again, a people that had abandoned him, that had forgotten his faithfulness to them. And the simple answer is, is because God promised he would. Right? God had covenanted himself to his people. He had promised them, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will not leave you. God remains faithful to them, not because of who they are or what they've done, but because of who he is. And you and I have to begin to see the love of God this way. That His love is not determined by our actions or lack thereof. God is a God that covenants Himself to His people, His church, His bride. And when He does that, He tethers Himself to His people and says, I'm not letting you go no matter how hard you try and wonder, no matter how many times you drop the ball, no matter how many times you fail, I'm going to keep up my end of the bargain. Because that's the kind of God that we serve. He's a covenant-keeping God that keeps His Word and loves His people because of who He is, not because of who they are. So what does God promise to do? This is the failure of the shepherds of Israel. And God says, I'm going to come and do something about it. How does He promise to do that? This is point two, the promise of a better shepherd. If you'll look with me in verse 11, He says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I... I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Notice that over and over again in the the next few verses we're going to read that he repeats that phrase, I, I myself. God basically looks at Ezekiel and the nation of Israel and says, these shepherds continue to drop the ball. I'm not raising up another person to come and shepherd my sheep. I myself will come and be their shepherd. God says, I myself, I will step in and rescue my people. So he was not going to leave them abandoned, scattered, terrified, vulnerable. He was going to come and shepherd them. So how exactly has God promised to come and shepherd his people? In verse 10, he's already said that he's going to deliver them from the bad shepherds. That he's going to come and basically remove these previous rulers from office. They're gone. Then in verse 11, in verse 12, I'm going to read verse 12. He says, As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Next thing that God promises to do is he, he promises to search and seek for those who are scattered. Where the bad shepherds had neglected and even abused the weakest sheep. I want you to notice that God puts them first in this list. Notice that it's the ones who were scattered, the ones who wondered. It's those, right? Those who have been taken advantage of it. It was those sheep that God actually made the priority. When stating His shepherding care for His people, He mentions the weak and the wandering first. The very group that the bad shepherds ignored 
God says, I'm going to go seek them out. I myself, I will seek out my people. The next thing He promises to do, verse 13. He says, And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and on the mountain, let's see, and in all the inhabited places of the country. So God not only promises to go and get His people, He takes a step further. He says, I'm going to gather them from all the nations and I'm going to bring them back to the land I promised them. Then in verse 14 and 15, He says, I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. So God promises two more things. He promises, number one, to feed them in good pasture. God promises to lead His sheep to nourishment. But then He also promises to make them lie down in safety. Right, again, Kevin talked to us last week about in Psalm 23 that sheep will only lay down when their needs have been met and when they feel secure, when they feel safe. God promises to be that for His people, to provide for every single need that they possess and to so totally protect them that they would lie down in peace. Right, this is reminiscent of Psalm 23 in the way that David described Yahweh as a good shepherd. Verse 16, he says, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. In short, what God promises to do in verse 16 is to be the total opposite of what Israel had had out of its leadership. God promises to come and be the shepherd that they needed in verse 16, to be the exact opposite of everything they had experienced. Skip on down with me. Look at verse 20. God promises one more thing. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. So God kind of has two two little promises that sort of go together hidden in that passage. First, He says in verses 17 through 19 that He's going to judge between the sheep and the goats, right? That there are people in the flock of Israel who blatantly do not belong there, right? Goats and sheep might graze together, but they were not a part of God's flock. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove the goats. I'm going to get them out of the way. But then in verse 20, what we find out is that in the absence of a good shepherd, you actually had... Some sheep taking advantage of other sheep. Right? It says that the fat sheep, the stronger sheep, were pushing the weaker sheep aside, not letting them eat. In the absence of good leadership, sheep were stepping up and taking advantage of weaker sheep. Now, I think here is where we begin to see that this metaphor kind of operates on a number of planes, right? There's different layers to the story. We see this as a metaphor. We also see it applying directly and immediately to Israel's situation, right? The fact that they were scattered abroad, that this was their story. But we also have to see this list of the ways that poor shepherding affects the sheep. And then we also have to see that this is a, this right here is a metaphor for the church as well, right? That God has put shepherds in place under shepherds. 
is what we often call them, right? That because Jesus is the shepherd of his church, he places men in positions of authority in the church for the sake of shepherding his flock. Verses 20 through 22 tell us an all too common tale about churches, right? That in the absence of good leadership, what so often happens is we see some of the more strong and opinionated sheep tend to step into a leadership role at the expense of the weaker sheep. I don't know if you've ever been to a church like that. If you haven't, we've all heard the stories, right? About that one family or two that tends to run the church at the expense of what's best for the church. This is what God's talking about. And what good leadership does is not only protect from dangers outside the flock, the good shepherd protects from dangers within the flock. And it's worth noting that God does call them sheep. He does not say this is goats pushing you out of the way. He said they're strong sheep pushing the weaker sheep aside. Even the strong and opinionated sheep that would err towards this side of dominating and controlling, they are still sheep loved by the shepherd. But what it means for God to be a good shepherd to his people is that he's going to lovingly correct with a rod those who would seek to take advantage of the weaker sheep. And he's also going to lovingly pull the weaker sheep into the flock, make sure that they're being nourished, that they're being fed. This is a picture of church leadership. In that same vein, right, church leadership ought to model exactly the kind of leadership that we see from God here. We ought to see leaders in the church nourishing the flock by the word of God, not leaving them malnourished. We ought to see leaders protecting, not only against internal danger like we talked about, but from external external danger, right? People outside the church, things outside the church that would seek to come in and wreak havoc in the church. It's also the responsibility of the leaders to care for the weak and wounded and the wandering, right? Those who are unable to care for themselves, those who are broken, those who are defenseless, those who have just merely wandered away from the flock, it's the shepherd's responsibility to go and get them and bring them back into the flock. This is a picture of what God expects out of His church leadership. And I will say, thankfully, I'm not saying it's about myself because I'm not one of them. I'm just an intern, right? So for the good and the bad, I'm just going to tell you, hey, I just work here, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm not an elder, but I will say that Man, we've got some really good men that God has given to this church who have God's shepherding heart. That's God's Spirit working in people in our midst to care for us as a church. So our our hope is is that the, the leadership of this church would reflect God's care for His people and that you would flourish as a result. But our prayer is also that God would be raising up more men with this kind of heart. First and foremost, that will lead this way in their homes and in their families. And then secondly, that will lead this way for God's people. So men, may we strive to lead like this. May we see this as a model. So this is what God promises to do for His flock. To come and be the shepherd that the people needed but had never had. But then He promises something else that seems to contradict something He said earlier. If you look down at verse 23... He says, and I will set up for them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. All right, now this this seems weird at two levels if you think about it. Number one, 
God said, I, I myself will come and shepherd my people. Well, is it God Himself if He raises up somebody else to do it? So that's one issue. But then secondly, David's been dead a long time. This is not a prophecy about David coming and being the true king of Israel. David's long dead. And every leader that's followed him has been, for the most part, a disaster. So, what is God promising to do? If you would, flip over to John chapter 10. Keep a finger there on Ezekiel 34. Flip over to John chapter 10 with me. Who is this shepherd that God is going to raise up? In John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verse 11. Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares for nothing and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. Right, Jesus, in response to this prophecy in Ezekiel 34, He looks out at the nation of Israel and says, I am the good shepherd. When God promised that He Himself, He would come down and rescue you, that He would come and bind up the broken and seek the lost... He was talking about me. Now the reason why this would have been such a bold claim was that Jesus was not saying, hey, I'm another prophet. Hey, I'm another ruler. Hey, I'm someone else in a long line of people set up to rule over you. God said, I myself will do it. Jesus is saying, I am God dwelling among you. I myself will come down. And God fulfilled that promise in Jesus. In Jesus, God promises to do every single thing that God promised to do in Ezekiel 34. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the total opposite of anything we saw from the rulers of Israel. The rulers of Israel sought to basically use the sheep for their own gain. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I value your life so much so that I'm willing to lay my life down that you may have it. Jesus is the total opposite of what Israel had experienced in the sheep. When the, when the shepherds in Israel's history fled in the face of danger, Jesus read headlong into it to save His people, willingly laying down His life for the flock. Jesus is willing to care for the flock even at the expense of His own life. But then in verse 16, not only, I'm willing to wait, not only am I willing to lay down my life for the flock, verse 16, He says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, and there will be one shepherd. This is Jesus fulfilling the promise from Ezekiel 34 to go and gather His people from among the nations. Jesus says, I'm going to be the one to go out and find those who have strayed, those who are wandering. And this is where we begin to see Ezekiel 34 through a much wider lens. 
I think sometimes when we read the Old Testament, right, we, we have the, the advantage of being on this side of history and being able to look back and see the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. Israel didn't have that, so it's easy to see why they would have misunderstood Jesus' mission when He came. But God's ultimate purpose was not just to have the nation of Israel be great, to have them be the greatest country on the face of the planet. God's goal was much, much bigger than that. His mission throughout all of human history since the fall of man was to redeem His people. Not merely to rescue Jews from Babylon, but to redeem His people, His church. But the question is, redeem them from what? We can't really fathom the situation that Israel found themselves in, right? All of their leaders were inherited. Ours are elected. If we don't like somebody, we're just going to kick them out of office in four years or six years, whatever it is. And we're just going to elect new ones. The nation of Israel did not have that chance. So what is it that God is going to redeem His people from? Ephesians 2, 1-3 through 3 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So you and I are not born under inherited leaders who are failing. You and I are born under the ultimate oppressor, sin. Scripture says that you and I are born sinners. That from the moment you and I draw our first breath, we are rebelling against God. And like a fish in water doesn't know it's wet, you and I are born into this world with a distorted view of God and everything He's made. From birth, we are spiritually dead, totally unresponsive to God. And as a result of that, right, we go about our lives doing what we can to make ourselves happy and to fill that void that we can't seem to place our finger on. And all the while, Scripture says you are totally enslaved to sin. Ephesians told us that we were hemmed in by sin in three places. Depending on your denomination, right, you tend to emphasize one over the other, but Scripture talks about three different areas of sin that hold us in captivity. Sin in the world around us, sinful world that we live in, uh, And then he also says that we are held captive by the deceiver, right? The prince of the power of the air, Satan, the ultimate deceiver. And then he says sin inside of us, right? That you and I are born sinners. And like the people held captive in Babylon, you and I are held captive by sin with no hope in the world. We're utterly hemmed in, utterly hopeless. But sin always holds out incredible promises to us, doesn't it? It doesn't seem much like hopelessness when you're in sin, at least at first. Sin promises us deep satisfaction, the green pastures and still waters, but instead leads us to a bare and parched land, leaving us totally unsatisfied. Sin promises us security and comfort to make us lie down in peace, but instead it just tends to leave us beset with anxieties, insecurities, guilt, and crippling shame, leaving us totally unsatisfied, perhaps even less satisfied than when we began And because there's no hope to be found, we convince ourselves that maybe we just need to keep doing what we're doing, keep indulging in that sin, and maybe it will deliver on its promises eventually. At the very least, it does temporarily numb that longing that we feel. And in this way, sin maintains its vice-like grip on our hearts. As we said last Sunday, our sins are hands too strong for us. And look, maybe this is still your story. Maybe maybe when you read the description of the rulers of Israel, maybe when you hear sin put in that context, you begin to realize that 
that's still very much my existence. That sin has held out all these promises of security and comfort and peace and true satisfaction. And instead it just leaves me empty. It just leaves me more broken. And if you can say that used to be your story, then what you remember is you remember the voice of the shepherd. Right? Because... Every single one of us has that story. Whatever form it might take for you, every single one of us has been in captivity to sin. But you remember that moment, whether it was one moment or a series of moments where you heard the voice of the shepherd calling you out. And in that moment, rescue found you. That's the testimony that every single person has in this room that knows Christ. That's been rescued from their sins. The promise of God in Jesus in John 10, Ezekiel 34, is that no matter where you may find yourself, Jesus' call will reach to the ends of the earth, to every tribe and every tongue. But it will also reach to the depths, which is maybe where some of you find yourselves this morning, at rock bottom. No one is out of earshot from the call of the shepherd, including you. Jesus did ultimately come and lay down His life for the sheep in the total fulfillment of promises of the Old Testament. He laid down His life willingly for people like you and me, and then He took up His life again. He was resurrected. Colossians 2.15 tells us that through the cross, through His resurrection, Jesus totally triumphed over sin, Satan, and the grave and put them to open shame, disarming our enemies. God has done in Jesus exactly what He promised He would do in Ezekiel 34. He's raised up a shepherd. It just so happens to be Him. And He's come and made Himself our good and faithful shepherd. So in conclusion, I'll say this. If you've never experienced the soul satisfaction of knowing the shepherd, if you've never known the peace, the comfort, the satisfaction, the joy, the freedom of being shepherded by Christ, then the call for you this morning is to come out of a life of sin, a life out of captivity to sin, and enter into the life that Jesus promises If you have experienced this rescue of Jesus, then my encouragement to you from Scripture is don't put on yourself again the yoke of slavery. Don't don't settle again for believing the lies that sin promises you. Instead, cling to Christ. If you identify with the wandering sheep, then return to Jesus this morning. The satisfaction, the security, comfort, and nourishment of the green pastures and the still waters will never be found in our sin or in our stuff, but only in the Good Shepherd. And so I'll close with an exhortation from Hebrews. He says, Today, if you hear His voice, the voice of our Good Shepherd, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for being the Good Shepherd that comes to seek and save His people. Father, that no no matter how little we deserved it, Father, we certainly were not looking for You, but You came and looked for us. You came and found us at our lowest points across the face of the earth. Lord, and You're doing that for people all across the world. God, You are redeeming and rescuing Your people. Father, would we see Your heart, Your care for Your flock radiating from this passage in Ezekiel 34 and see the way that You zealously love Your people. Father, we help us to see this gospel this morning and rest in what Christ has done for us. Well, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.